Good morning. Welcome to Trinity. My name is John, and I'm the pastor here. Good to see you. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I felt like I needed to make a political disclaimer after that first song. The year of Jubilee, we started singing that before Biden made his announcements, okay? I just want to let you know. If you remember, we sung it last week too, okay? We're not trying to make a statement with that. You can go read about it in the Bible if you want to, but uh, we're not trying to say anything here, okay? We moved here about a year ago, and I'm actually pretty proud to say that we have unpacked most of the boxes that we brought with us, um, way better than I would expect of myself. But if you go into that dungeon area where the washer and dryer are in the basement, you could find a few boxes in there. And let's just imagine you were in there with me, kind of rummaging through, saying what was in there. You came across my eighth grade yearbook. What might that be like? Well, we often do this, right? You kind of flip through to the person that you know in the book to see what that picture might look like, right? And so, of course, you would discover that I had the same haircut that most boys in my class in New Orleans at that time had the wedge. You guys remember the wedge? And also the butt cut. So my hair was parted down the middle, which a lot of, a lot, I've noticed a lot of the ladies do that now too. So I don't know if it's coming back for the guys, but I had the butt cut. And um, I'm sure I was wearing some kind of knitted polo shirt, probably with vertical stripes. And I probably had this really tough look on my face, like I was a gangster, had definitely been listening to Bone Thugs on the way to school. (laughs) But if you flip to the back of the book, you would notice where the white pages are, where the people signed things, that people had written things in there. And as I'm guessing... Girls are more verbally developed at this point. Some of the things were written were larger from girls. And you would notice that some of these girls had written something very funny, something that would be worthy of us to laugh at this morning. And one of the funniest things you will find in there is a line that says, whatever you do, don't ever change. Don't ever change. Stay exactly the way you are. Keep that butt cut. Let Fresh Prince be your guiding light your entire life. Act the way you're always acting now, right? And of course, don't get me wrong. There were some good things about me, I'm sure. That eight-year-old John Ziegler, I'm sure there was a lot to appreciate, right? A lot to love and embrace. I was voted class friendliest, okay? So I must have been a friendly guy. Um, Didn't happen four years later when I graduated high school. I I got most spirited, which at my school was like, likes to dress up and act a fool. Uh, The funny thing is about this, of course, is because the truth is whether we like it or not, we are all changing. We are all in the process of becoming something or someone. The only thing you are not doing today is staying the same. And so the critical question for us this morning, really the one of great importance is, what are you becoming? Once upon a time, there was a God who loved the people and he called this people to be his own. And this people was oppressed and they were in slavery in Egypt and they cried out to their God. And so their God looked down on them with compassion and he came to rescue them. And he raised them out of slavery in Egypt and he brought them into a new land. 
into a space where everything was provided for and where they had everything that they needed. And he taught them how to live together in the love of their God and how to love each other and how to care for each other and how to care for the land. But you guys know this story. Slowly but surely, their hearts began to long to serve other gods, gods that were not Yahweh, gods who had not freed them. It's a story about worship. You could say they began to get caught up in the liturgy of those around them. There were patterns of life and patterns of worship. And all worship is really doing is just describing where ultimate value is, right? So it's not just religious people or people that are consciously religious. They're talking about what ultimate value is. I was at a party last night. It was a wonderful party. And I was sitting across from just a wonderful couple. They were so cultured and educated and interesting and smart and secular. They would see themselves as non-religious. But they know how to ascribe value. There is a liturgy to their lives. There are things that are shaping what they love. And what happened with God's people is they were around other people that began to train their hearts in the wrong direction, away from the God that loved them. And so we get to our reading this morning from the prophet Jeremiah in the second chapter. This is what Jeremiah says, hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob. And all the families of the house of Israel, says the Lord. What wrong did your ancestors find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless things and became worthless themselves? And then he goes on to recount how his people turned after a foreign god, Baal. And then he asks the question, Has a nation ever changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have exchanged their glory for something that does not profit. Now, friends, these are big words this morning, and they might sound quite heavy to you because they are. How can a person exchange their glory? What does it mean to go after worthless things? What does it mean to become worthless? We are all becoming something or someone. Is it possible to become worthless? And what does it mean to go after worthless things? One of my favorite theologians and pastors is a bishop by the name of N.T. Wright from the Church of England. And if you haven't read any of N.T. Wright's books, I encourage you. Some of them are like popular, very easy to read. Some of them are super heavy. Um, if you've never started with him, feel free to start with the popular ones. He's actually got a very pastoral podcast out right now where people are just sending in questions. And so just a little side note, encourage you to go check him out if you haven't. But something that N.T. Wright is constantly saying either in his books or as he talks is that we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. We take on the character of the thing it is that we worship. And if it's okay with you this morning, I'd like to read a rather lengthy quote from one of N.T. Wright's books called Surprised by Hope. I don't usually read a quote this long, but if if you don't mind, bear with me because it's gonna speak so well to this passage that we read this morning uh, in Jeremiah about uh, 
chasing after things that are worthless and become worthless ourselves. So let's look at what N.T. Wright says. He says, when human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship, not only to the object itself, but also outward into the world. I'm gonna read just that part again. When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship, not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around. Then he gives some examples. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combined in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. Some time ago, I was pastoring in Los Angeles and a good old friend of mine from Louisiana had reached out to me and I was super happy to hear from this friend because I hadn't heard from him in a long time. Only I was actually sad to find out that why he was reaching out to me is that he had gotten into some kind of business scheme, some kind of thing he was into trying to make some money. And he reached out to me asking, hey, would you be interested in this? And do you think maybe some folks in your church might be interested in being a part of this thing? Interestingly enough, not only had he monetized our relationship, but he was interested in monetizing the relationship of my parishioners. And I find this shocking. And I find it shocking not because I judge my friend. I find it shocking because I can find myself in my friend. As I read this quote from N.T. Wright, I do so with great conviction because I too know what it's like to be lured into the worship of money and to have begun to think of others as partners or potential customers or human beings. I know what it's like to have been lured into the worship of sex and treated others as actual or potential objects. I know what it is like to be tempted by the God of power and to treat others as collaborators, competitors, or pawns. Friends, idolatry is shocking, not because it is something that is so foreign to us, but because it is something that we have all been caught up in or are currently caught up in, and we are always being tempted at all times to be caught up in it. 
What are you becoming? We become like what we worship. The Israelites worshiped things that were worthless and in turn became worthless themselves. But let's put it positively this morning. If I can become like what I worshiped, I don't know about you guys, but I want to worship something that is precious. I want my heartfelt allegiance to go towards something that is, that is precious. And in doing so, I want to have the hope that I could truly discover my worth, my true worth and my potential. So how do we do that? How do you do that? How do you index your life to something that really matters? And how do we avoid worshiping things that might be good? I, you know, these things we're naming aren't bad, right? Like money's not bad, sex isn't bad, power when it's used rightly isn't bad. It's just an end to themselves, right? When they're used for the wrong purpose, when they become the thing which I ultimately must serve. How do we avoid this? Well, of course, friends, the good news is that Jesus came for us. We have the gospel of the incarnation. And one of my favorite saints, St. Athanasius, put it this way. He said, God became like us so that we might become like him. He said, literally, God was humanized so that we might be divinized. What he meant was that God took on our nature so that we might share in his divine nature. There's a fancy theological word for this we call theosis. And you guys can say that because you're fancy. It's simply the process by which we are transformed into the image of Christ. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? Like I'm in for that. But how? How does that happen? How are we transformed? Well, if N.T. Wright and the prophet Jeremiah are correct and the worship of false gods causes us to lose the image of God that we were created to reflect, then I think we could say, along with many folks throughout church history, that the opposite is true. That the worship of the true God transforms us into the image of Christ because we become like what we worship. And friends, that's why the liturgy is so important. Did you know that word liturgy really just refers to the worship of the church? That's why the liturgy is so important. That is why people like me insist on maintaining this ancient form of Christian worship that has been passed on through the church in favor of something else that might just seem like kind of intuitive to me or something that might feel more rev relevant or cool or hip. Our liturgy follows the ancient pattern of the early church. It was adapted from the Jewish synagogue and transformed by the story of the gospel. And so I want us just to reflect for a little minute on our liturgy, these practices that we participate in every Sunday and reflect on how God might be using these practices to transform us into his image. And in a sense, to kind of reprogram us to see or reshape our hearts to see him as he truly is and see the world around us. By the way, I don't wanna to get too far into it, but there's this guy that I like uh, named James K. Smith. He's kind of a reformed theologian and he's got these books about liturgy. Uh, one of them that's pretty accessible, it's called uh, You Are What You Love. 
and he makes the good po- a good point, and I want to say just as, as it's competing, that we have these cultural liturgies that we participate in all the time. Uh, a cultural liturgy, you might think about going to a Braves game. It's almost like going to pilgrimage, I bet. And I haven't been, but I've been to other games, so I know what it's like, right? You're going up, right? You're going up to Truish Stadium, like you might go up to Temple Mount, right? I mean, you're going to make sacrifice. You're going to probably give a little bit of money to get up there, I'm guessing, right? And spend a little bit of money while you are. But that sacrifice is worth it, right? Because it actualizes you as a real Atlantan person. It makes you into the American citizen that you're supposed to be, right? You're going you're gonna to sing some songs in there together, right? There's a liturgy in there. Like everyone's going to know the songs. For some of them, you're going to place your hand on your heart. You're going to stand up. Others, you're just going to sing where you are. You're going to know, you know when to sit and when to stand there, don't you? Like you know the motions. And that's designed to do something. It's designed to shape your heart and your affections into a certain thing. And I got nothing wrong with going to sports games. Just let me know. Like where, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make my way around here and I've got my own teams that I have affection for because I've been shaped in the same way you guys have been shaped. And it's not just sports. Of course, when we send our kids to school, there's liturgy there. There's things that are shaping their hearts and affections. And so what I want you to know is we're gonna talk about the liturgy here, but there's always competing liturgies out there. I'm just naming that. And, and the reason that we need to come here again and again every Sunday and participate in these rites that shape us. So let's talk about it. We come in in the morning, the first thing we do is we say the acclamation, blessed be God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then the people respond, blessed be his kingdom now and forever. And here in doing this, in the liturgy, we're offering up all of our lives to God. So in the acclamation, we're saying that all of our lives must be indexed to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're saying it's all about him. And we're saying that his kingdom is blessed. And when you do that, you're acknowledging that his way is blessed. And it's a way of acknowledging that all the other ways, all the other paths are actually not the blessed paths. The ones that don't, that don't point you to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're not the way. All the ways that our culture would wanna shape us, we say, no, it's the path of the kingdom the kingdom of love and justice and peace. This is the path that is blessed. And then what do we do? We sing hymns and we read scripture and we hear sermons. Songs, scriptures, and sermons, they're all telling us a story about what is of ultimate value. They're all designed to recalibrate our hearts, to recalibrate our loves and our desires around what is of ultimate value. And so you could ask, what is God doing in you as you sing and as you read and as you listen? Here's a thought. He is revealing his glory. His divine beauty and goodness and truth from beyond us are coming near. Friends, I want you to know that the point of the liturgy definitely isn't to entertain you, but the point of it actually isn't to educate you either. It's to draw you in to the glory. It's to draw you into the glory. It's God standing here among us and beckoning us to enter into his glory. 
And in doing so, it indexes our hearts towards something that is worthy of our praise. And then we respond in the confession. In the confession, we acknowledge the ways in which our loves have been disordered, right? We pray, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. It's a way of acknowledging before God and before each other that our hearts have not been indexed through the triune God. That there are other powers that are pulling on our affections and causing us to move in different directions. And so we say we are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. That what? That we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Friends, we become like what we worship. In the confession, we are saying, God, we wanna delight in the same things that you delight in. We want our hearts to be like yours. We want to love what you love. We want to walk in your ways. And then we have the offering and the doxology. And there in the offering, we are acknowledging that all of our blessings, that everything we have, the fruit of our labor and the total sum of our lives comes from God alone. And so we have this prayer out of Chronicles that we pray sometimes, all things come from you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you. What we have doesn't ultimately come from our jobs or from our families or from the government. We don't owe all the wonderful blessings of this life to the God of war or to the God of the economy or to the God of human wisdom and knowledge. No, we are saying all of life is received as a gift from the triune God revealed in the stories of the scripture and the story of the church. And he's the one that we acknowledge for our sustenance. And then in the celebration of the Eucharist itself, we acknowledge that God is worthy of praise and thanksgiving as first of all, as the blessed creator of all things. We acknowledge his good gift for us in creation. And then secondly, we acknowledge that he is worthy of praise and thanksgiving as the God who empties himself, as the God who comes near, as the God who becomes like us, poor and helpless and vulnerable and out of love, sacrifices himself for us that we can be in relationship with him that the priceless image of God inside of you can be restored that we might not only see his glory but be transformed into his glory he gives himself for us he becomes the lamb the bread of heaven that we might receive him into our bodies and in doing so, become more like him. Friends, it's in the Eucharist that we 
ascribe ultimate worth to the crucified one. At the end of the liturgy, we're sent out into the world to do the work he has given us to do. And what is that work? What's the work he has given us to do? Well, of course, that work involves becoming like Christ for the sake of the world, right? In a sense, we are sent out to be his arms of compassion to the world around us. But I would say part of that work we are given to do is to simply to contemplate those things we have seen in the Eucharist. And by that, I mean to contemplate the crucified one, to ascribe ultimate worth to Christ, to be daily transformed by the love of the cross, to stare at the cross and to know and to feel just how deeply he loves you, to really and truly believe that you are loved just as you are and therefore you are capable of becoming Christ's instrument of compassionate love to those around you. I was reading this week a letter from St. Clair of Assisi to a woman named Agnes. And some of you probably know St. Clair. She was a kind of our early partner and disciple of St. Francis. And she's talking to Agnes about how to daily contemplate the cross. And she sees the cross. She talks about the cross in interesting language that I don't think I've ever heard before. It might be unique to Claire. She talks about it as a mirror. When you look into a mirror, you see what's actually there. And the cross is in a sense, shows us reality. And so this is what Claire says to Agnes. Place your mind before the mirror of eternity. So place your mind before the cross, the mirror of eternity. Place your soul in the brilliance of glory. Place your heart in the figure of the divine substance. She's referring to Christ crucified. And through contemplation, transform your entire being into the image of the Godhead itself. This is what Claire is telling her to do. And I think this is what we can do ourselves contemplate Christ on the cross, contemplate his love. Let him become both the object and the source of your deepest affections. And it's through contemplating the cross that you can watch yourself be transformed into the image of God. We become like what we worship. Amen. I want to invite you into a time of reflection this morning as we consider what the Spirit might be saying to us this morning.